In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome to another episode of the Drive Time Show here on The Voice of Islam. Today with myself, Reza, and Brother uh, Daniel. Over the next two hours, we're going to be with you. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's just, it's not because... No, it was better than last time. Not, so, yes, no, it's, it's, it's just getting the, better. I have yeah, the, yeah. the habit of yeah, going yeah, I get it, from the right. It, so, fine. usually, the yeah, old man is okay, sitting okay, on my right-hand side. But, exactly. yeah, I do apologize. So, no, it's, no, it's myself, to, Raza, and Brother Daniel. I totally get it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm used to it. Oh, man, I messed up right at the start, <laughs> didn't I? <laughs> Anyways, over the next two hours, you are going to join us as we speak about two topics, as usual. In the first half of the program, we're going to speak about depression. And is it a matter, is it a question of just stop whining or not? And in the second half of the program, we're going to speak about STEM Um, the need to bridge the gender gap. um, That's all coming up in the second half of the program. As always, if you want to have your say, if you want to join the conversation, do give us a call on 0208-687-7878 or you can send us a tweet at Voice of Islam UK. Don't forget, we're also on Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok and you can also email us. Brother Daniel, assalamu alaikum, peace upon you. How are you? How was the week? (laughs) <laughs> Waalaikum assalam Peace be on you as well I guess Yeah absolutely <laughs> Trying to Yeah in vain No that's not going to work uh, The week was good Yeah absolutely But uh, it obviously Is not ending on a, on a great note But that's fine Yeah, As I said I'm used to it yeah. <laughs> you're, you're making me depressed now Oh you're my saying, god yeah, I, I think yeah we, So uh, my hour is going to be uh, No I don't know about your hour my, 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, was, I didn't even say the name Didn't I Yeah uh, Anyway, so and and I think uh, very aptly we are talking about depression today. So yeah. uh, this is something that affects millions worldwide. It's a silent struggle that often uh, overshadowed by stigma, as well as misconception. In a recent controversy, it was tweet- it was tweeted, "When you lose hope, you're a loser, and no one would care about you. Everyone will go to bed at ten and sleep like a baby. You are the only one who would get sleepless nights. This is self-inflicted harm." And you brought this to yourself. Man up and think positively of Allah and show him your gratitude over countless things that he had given you and stop bitching and Mm. whining. Excuse my French. So that was the tweet which I quoted. And, well, if it was anyone else, if it was just a random uh, person and the average Joe, you would somehow, I wouldn't say understand it, but you wouldn't really put it under a microscope but if it's someone who has a huge following if it's someone who considers or who is considered by a lot of people to be an islamic scholar then in my uh, eyes that poses a problem i mean the question or the the statement of if you are depressed that's a sign of of weak faith mm-hmm. or um just just pray to god almighty and everything will be fine you're not consistent in your prayers. And uh, you know, statements along these lines are usually what we hear. Um, I wouldn't say in in the subcontinent, in the, in, the, in the culture of the subcontinent, but I think this is a Muslim uh, stigma probably, which, which you will encounter uh, across the Muslim world, unfortunately. Not, not, not all of them, of course, mm. but it, it is something that I personally have heard. It is something... Mm. I'm sure that you've come across as well. 
But before we get into this topic, I think this is something that uh, I would like to categorically make clear. This is not the case. This is yeah. I mean, this 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 statement not lacks a sign of empathy. Yeah. Absolutely, it's uh, it's totally ridiculous. It's an illness like any other physical illness. So you can't say if somebody's having a stomach ache or somebody um, has uh, another debilitating uh, disease. Somebody has cancer. You can't say that you have cancer because you've uh, you are weak in faith and. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, it's 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 a disease. It's it's because of a chemical imbalance. Uh, it's a, it's it's a, it's an issue that needs to be dealt with, just like any other medical issue. And therefore, I think there's um, uh, there's nothing to uh, uh, to relate it to faith. Yes, w- once you have it, I mean, yeah, you could you could also be. By the way, you could also be. Um, it could also be in your genes. Mm-hmm. So this is something that you could just inherit, uh, yeah. no fault of yours. You could be a man of faith, or but um, uh, it is now known scientifically that many mental health conditions, even something like uh, something as um, extreme as schizophrenia, can be genetic. Yeah. So before we start into this uh, topic, I mean, this is um, something that you have to understand. Depression is not just about oh, he's feeling sad all the time, or oh, he's feeling down, or she's feeling down all the time. That's it's that's not what it is. It is we know um, after so much research that has come out, after so many stats that people have compi- uh, c- compiled and organizations. And speaking of organizations, there are multiple organizations out there who are dealing with this very serious issue. So it is a complex mental health condition that can easily cast a very, very heavy shadow on every aspect of life. So we are going to talk about this. We're going to try to navigate through the depths of depression, shedding some light, trying to shed some light and understanding along the way as to why depression is such a serious mental health condition that should not be taken so lightly um, and and to call it just, you know, manning up or or... Mm or just uh, self-inflicted harm, um, completely wrong. Um, While I was thinking about this on the way, what we try to do usually is, when when we're talking about Islam, for us, uh, the Holy Quran is, is, is the source of all wisdom, of all guidance. Now, in order for us to understand the, the, the answer to a problem, you need to find the problem itself. So do we find this issue? Do we find instances in the Holy Quran where you could say that, look, this is something that previous people, previous nations, previous prophets even have gone through as well? Yes or no? I mean, for us, again, the, the first and foremost is the Holy Prophet of Islam. May the peace and blessings of Allah be so upon nice, him. So. Uh, the Holy Prophet Muhammad. But even before him, one instance that I came across is the story of Prophet Joseph. I mean, this is a whole chapter uh, that talks about his whole entire life story, how his brothers, they requested his father to take him, to play mm. with him, but his father didn't really want to send them because he knew kind of the intention, he had a dream and whatnot. But he still told them, okay, you know what, just just take him and, and make sure that you bring him back in one piece. And what happened is, you know, long story short, because of the jealousy that his that that his brothers had, they left him in a well. Told his father, brought a you know shirt which was filled with blood. Oh, a wolf came and and uh, the, he took Joseph. Now his father knew the the whole story. Yeah. You know, he was a prophet of of, of God, Prophet yeah. Jacob, and in the Holy Quran, we we read 
that he and he turned away from them again his brothers or his sons in this in this case and said oh my grief for joseph and his eyes became white because of grief and he was suppressing his sorrow and again when we look at uh, the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him same scenario what was he not afflicted with mm-hmm. and the holy quran also speaks uh, in the sermon today i mentioned this verse as well that well, oh, happily wilt thou grieve thyself to death because yeah. of the fact that they believe not. And this is was this was his concern for the people around him. Imagine, for example, I mean, it's not really a comparison, but if you are at work, you have an assignment, you have a task, you have a deadline to 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 complete and to work to towards, and you're not able to do it. There's a lot of people out there who who feel the burden of that way to say, you know what, I will be held accountable, my boss is going to yell at me, uh, my co-workers will laugh at me, so and so and so. And all that burden just sometimes feels so heavy mm. that you're not even able to move. Yeah. And so the situation is pretty much the same that you're basically paralyzed, you're sitting there and like, how am, mm. I, how, how am I going to do this? And you grieve yourself, you, you, you feel so lost, you feel so sad, so heavy, that you're not able to do anything. And the situation with the Prophet, again, multiply that by infinity. Mm-hmm. His job was not just to address the problems in the society that he was living in. He literally has the weight of the world. The on, weight on of the world, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's, that's probably the best way to put it. We're going to continue with this. After we've spoken to our first guest for today, joining us now on the line is Ali Nasser, who is a counselor with a private practice. Ali, assalamu alaikum. Good afternoon. Peace be upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, now, let me start off very, very uh, simple. What's When we talk about depression... I think everybody has has a certain concept in their mind. As I said in the beginning, people think, oh, that person is just sad all the time. Um, they're not able to do anything. They like to stay indoors and slightly like to stay in the dark. What are some of the misconceptions that people may have about this mental health condition and how real is it? So depression can be characterized as low mood that happens for an extended or long period of time, usually um, over the period of sort of six months, so obviously we're all we're all prone to low mood at some point. That's that's natural part of the human condition. And when I say low mood, it's very much things you just mentioned. You know, not wanting to go out, not having enough energy, um, feel, or on the other end, feeling incredibly uh, sort of restless, feeling just generally really down and really sad, and not being able to. Um, get yourself out of that place. Um, Depression is one of the most common mental health disorders as well, alongside anxiety. Um, And and some of the misconceptions people may have are that you can just get out of it, you can just snap out of it. Mm. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. It's something that can be managed in day-to-day life, but Various things need to be implemented, which we will talk about perhaps um, you know a bit later. But I think one of the most mis- common misconceptions is that you can just snap out of there. One of the other things people say, oh, it's all in your head. You know, you can yeah. just you can just get out of it. You know, anytime you want. Um, you know, oh, it's just a phase. That's one I hear a lot as well. Um, and these can be very damaging to the person going through depression because they can feel incredibly invalidated. So. 
is how would you differentiate between somebody who is uh, clinically depressed mm-hmm. versus somebody who just has a low mood? Yeah, I think clinical clinical depression is sort of, I guess, in the name when it's uh, usually been clinically diagnosed and you find that it is affecting your day-to-day life. It's affecting you being able to engage in things that you were previously interested in, eating the foods that you were previously eating. When it really seeps into your everyday life and it feels incredibly helpless, and you're not able, and, and basically you feel like you're drowning. I think that can be very much categorized as clinical depression. And as I said, for a prolonged period of time, because we can go through grief, we can go through these feelings of feeling really swamped and down. But it's the it's the time period that is the main factor that would influence whether it is a clinical it is clinical depression or not. How would you? What would be your advice to to people in general? Then, at what stage? would you recommend somebody going to a gp somebody who has who does experience low mood and and like you said as well that we all experience low moods you know at one point in time or another so what would be the um uh, when would be the right time to go to a gp so the right time would be when you find that your low mood is as as previously mentioned when you find it is affecting your life and you find mm. that you're not able to have any drive whatsoever any motivation not being able to even get out of bed and that's another thing with depression mm. as well and you're finding you're just not able to function this is when you need to seek help and i would urge people that with with going to the gp the gp can then refer you to therapy services there is a long waiting list however if you know, you wish to seek it more soon. There are counselling directories on um, online that you can go and have a private therapist as well. Uh, this is what I do, mm. and uh, and therapy is one of the most effective things for depression. And I know there are antidepressants and things out there, and I would never for a second knock them, but they they can alleviate some of the symptoms of depression, but not the root cause. And often there's a root cause that can happen with depression. You know, there's often a trigger which then leads to low mood, which therapy can, can help you work through. So I think, you know, so when you're, you're finding that it's actually affecting your life and you're really like, oh, gosh, I, I think I need some help, that's when you go and seek help. Don't delay it. So when somebody is unable to get out of bed, when somebody is doesn't have the energy, doesn't have the power to do any of these things... How would they then approach the GP? What's the role of of your family? What's the role of your friends? People who see that this person six months ago, five months ago, you know, he was with us or she was with us, mingling, laughing, mm. but now all of a sudden, that's not the case. Mm, well, that's it right there. I think friends and family need to be aware because often the person who doesn't have the energy to do it, they're going to delay seeking help, right? <clears throat> so as as a mom, a dad, brother, sister, friends, if you noticed anything, it's really important to try and, number one, empower that person with that information that, you know, you can go and seek help. And maybe helping them with some of the research to do with that, because they might not have the motivation to do that themselves, 
maybe helping them seek out a therapist, maybe encouraging them to go and see a doctor, but making it in the most normalized way as possible so that they don't feel shamed or embarrassed. And, and, and we have to do better as a support system. We have to learn to, I guess, normalize that these feelings that happen, whilst they are common, it, it's not okay. And it's really, really important to go and help other people, help our loved ones, to go and seek that help that they really desperately need. So, so we just need to be proactive with them, you know. And sometimes, you know, um, I always remember there was this thing I, I can't remember what I was watching, but I remember the daughter was really depressed, and the mum was just like, you know, right now I know you're really down and everything, and at this point in time you don't want to smile. Let me do the smiling for the both of us right now, and we'll get through this. And and that for me really embodied that it was really beautiful for me and it really hit me because I was like, Gosh, yeah, mm. sometimes you, you do. You have to just be not to the point where you're burning yourself out and, and that's the other thing as well. You know, just because you're a friend and a mom or anything like that, it doesn't mean that you're you're the professional help. You're the therapist. So you really have to help them get the help that they need. How do we manage this shame as you said or stigma that still surrounds mm. mental health issues i think we get we're probably beginning to get better uh, mm. i think a lot of people are now talking about it um on the media uh, and in social on social media as well but um do you think enough is is still being done and and do you think um or do you think there's still a lot of inertia there for uh, for people out there uh, who may need help and they're they're afraid to seek help because of this, there are a lot of gaps. I think num- I think one thing that we need to do is we need to number one educate about ourselves what depression is. Hmm. Secondly, we need to talk about it in open spaces. Hmm. And I'm going to use the example of within cultural communities, just because it's something that's very very big. And of course, being voice of Islam, and I know that all different cultures would be listening, but if we focus a little bit on minority cultures, such as the South Asian community, it's something that's not really talked about, or you're told, you know, oh, you, you're not doing enough prayers, that's why you've got depression. You know, you're really shamed into having these type of things, right? So we have to talk about it, and, they, and, and we have to educate ourselves about it and become enlightened about it. And there's a lot of resources out there um, just to list a few, there's resources from MIND's website, which is a national mental health charity, um, and there's just so much out there where you can you can really understand what it is, um, and 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 not make assumptions and cast those assumptions on other people. And I think the other thing also is you can't you can't fix someone, hmm. right? Because I think I think sometimes we operate from the thing that you know. You feel sick, you take a medicine, and then you get better. A human behavior is so much more complex than that. Mm. And I know I've, 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 I've had clients before who are um, off minority, and they always, they sometimes just come and they go, yeah, fix me. Mm. And I'm like, you're not broken, you know? You're just going through something. So I think that's a very important practice to understand that it doesn't mean that person is any less because they have something. And we have to talk about it and we have to understand the essence of what these mental health disorders, the implications that they have, rather than just remaining in ignorance and just not not really looking into what the actual 
fact is. Do you, you mentioned schools. Do you think hmm. we should... Um, we should make this part of curriculum and i say this because now as as you were talking i you know my mind went back to when i was in school probably in primary school and i think mm-hmm. that's when the attitudes are, and behavior sort of be um uh, are, are are the seed is planted in your mind and i remember you know you know a, a random pupil or a class fellow talking about this ex um uh, person who didn't show up uh, uh, in school that day because their parent w- went crazy or uh, was became mad or because they they um, uh, they were psycho. I mean, those were the kind of bad mm-hmm. words that you know you were used thirty years ago when I was in primary school. So mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, probably yeah. more. Um, so, <laughs> do you think it was this is something that needs to be formalized? Um, this education piece that you're talking about. I definitely always, always rally that mental health needs to be within the national curriculum. You know, education about this little thing is so much more. Right? We might have a friend, we might have a sister, a brother, a mom who is going through this. And so we need to be able to have health, like mental health professionals somehow in an initiative set up where they can come in and they can speak about these things. And so that that awareness can begin early. Because I think that that's, that's that's a very critical thing because unfortunately it's something that we know, we know exists, but we're not informed about it. And I and I think education, as I said before, education is so important in this. So absolutely, I think we, it does. It is something that needs to be formally in, ingrained in, into the curriculum, and, and, and somehow we need to set up something. Or within communities, we can set up workshops and things like that. That's some of what I do actually within the uh, religious community, and it's something that has been an incredibly empowering experience for a lot of men and women out there. So there is a there is something there. There is a, there is definitely a gap there hmm. that we need to address. <clears throat> Sister Alia in in your work um I mean you you do this this is your profession. Um again so I I don't know how long you've 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 been practicing and how long you've been working but what what kind of changes have you seen in, in since you started this work is it something what are the what are the factors that that impact the, you know people is it i mean when we talk about schools when we talk about uh younger people i'm thinking about bullying and in school i'm thinking about online bullying i'm thinking about social media and the role of social media itself and the whole pressure that is on the next generation how much of, mm-hmm. of an impact does that play and in that, what's the role of parents? Is it just simply a question of, you know what, let's just take away the phone, close down TikTok and Instagram and whatnot? Or or, or is there anything else that parents probably can do? You Educate your kids to use technology wisely and smartly. And the reason I'm saying that is because technology is everywhere. You can't take a phone. Sure. You can't. You can't do that, right? That's not. That is just. It's not the answer. What it is actually, it's about encouraging content that is going to be, uh, you know, there's a lot of positive content out there about uh, how to 
overcome different mental health struggles and you know different things and there's different i guess influencers who do who do you know speak quite quite well and are are quite you know so it's really important to moderate what your kids are watching number one number two because they're going to internalize everything as well it's important to also tell them that you know if there's this unrealistic kind of body standards and these kind of things that we often see on tiktok and things like that being like you know this isn't real hmm. you know this isn't real this isn't a standard that's achievable and I think it's about trying to hit some truth for the kids so that they really understand what is and what isn't. And I know when I was young, I didn't, I didn't actually have this. Um, I didn't have this kind of social media. Hmm. So for me, it was more what it was on the TV. Obviously, we had like supermodels and things like that, right? And and it was very much the same messages actually. Like that, when my mom would be like, "You know, it's not real, right?" Hmm. And, 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 and it would be these kind of things which would kind of influence that, oh, okay, so I don't need to, because teenagers are always going to compare themselves to other people. And that's one of the things that actually can lead to depression, right? Mm-hmm. And anxiety. So it's in, in all phases of life, as far as media has been there, you've just got to moderate the content that your kid is watching and observe what they're watching, become interested, be like, oh, okay, who's that? Like, what does she do? What does he do? You know, and, and you know, just in a really inquisitive, interested way, not in a helicopter parent way, right? Mm-hmm. It's about finding that balance. So we have to, so yeah, parents need to be really aware because I've seen what's happened when they just kind of leave the kids and I've, and then I've had these, <laughs> these same kids come to me and be like, I need help, mm-hmm. right? So we, we, we got we to gotta do better within our homes. And we have to we have to understand that social media is here to stay, but be smart with your social media. Mm-hmm. And I always say that. Um, with so sorry, just before I finish, sorry. Uh, there's uh, one thing that with my friend, I was looking on her Instagram and stuff like that, and she she was really down. And I said, listen, let me tidy this up for you. And she was like, what do you mean? I said, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna like put some accounts there so that they come up on your feed, and and you tell me how you feel in about a week, right? Because she was feeling really down about her body image. So I followed these kind of accounts and stuff that were a lot more empowering and a lot more, you know, positive messages and things like that. And she said, my God, that's made a huge difference, you know, just seeing that. So what you view registers in your brain. And there are good stuff out there. There's really good stuff out there. Mm. But just just encourage them to find it, you know. And, and I think, yeah, and I think, think, I think that's it on, on that. This is, is with, with these algorithms. You need to be really, really careful. You know, yeah. one one click and one video yeah. that 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 is a spiraling down. And, and because of that, do you yeah. think then there is a case to be made? You're absolutely right. Social media is here to stay, mm-hmm. but do you think there's a case to be made here for regulation of social media? Given uh, that uh, more and more young people, and I think there's growing amount of evidence now uh, that social media is increasingly being linked to mental health issues, especially in mm-hmm. teenagers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, of course, it, 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 well, there needs to be some form of regulation there. Mm. The only problem with that is I think there has been steps to do some regulation in the past, but then it comes, then there's so many lines that get blurred, like is this stopping somebody? You know, we talk a lot about freedom of speech. I'm sure mm. we've done a... Uh, a segment on that on Voice of Islam, anyways, but you know it, it, it's it's very overlapping. That's 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 why I say that um, parents and other people kind of just have to um, teach what's kind of appropriate. If that mm. make, if that makes sense, sure. because 
Yeah, I, I just, I just don't. I just feel like you know, whenever things have been moderated and stuff, there's always a lot of red tape that's come up, and that people get upset and everything. So it's, it's obviously uh, the, my, my, my go-to answer would be, oh yes, yes, you know, we need to really regulate or moderate. Mm. But then how, how far do we go with that? So I, ju- I just feel like you know, so much of it is actually about common sense and mm. being able to guide your teenager to make the right choice on what mm. they view because like there'll be things that come up on my thing and i'm just kind of like rubbish you know but i'm much older yeah right um but it's kind of you know but i just remember my mom my mom doing that as well there'll be something that's like rubbish <laughs> and she just switch over so I, and the number of times <laughs> we didn't agree with their moms <laughs> i kind of just internalized that and i didn't even realize but she was Ah, it's a broad load of rubbish. <laughs> if it was like very negative, or if it was very like yeah. like strange, it's like that rubbish. Yeah. And if it was good, she loved good. You know, so it's kind of yeah. So through these, through your own behaviour as well as a parent, because even parents get sucked into it. My goodness, yeah, yeah. we get sucked into the perfect lifestyle, looking at these Instagram families and whatnot. Yeah, right? Absolutely. We have to do that for ourselves yeah. before we can teach our kids. Yeah, yeah? absolutely. And uh, finally. Your thoughts on um, or your recommendations for any self-care practices or coping mechanisms for people who are dealing with depression? Yes. Uh, First of all, on top of that list, I would say, I mean, not really top. I would say therapy, right, if you can, get a hold of it. But alongside that, finding things in your life which have meaning to you. So for some people, that looks like faith. That looks like praying, right? Praying can bring peace. So that that can be one aspect, if that's something you relate to. Um, Or it can be just anything that you enjoy that feels good. And also, it's more than that. I think it's about answering your basic needs. Have you eaten that day? Have you slept enough? Are you warm? Are you comfortable? Uh, have you got a good social circle that you can talk to? Do you have supportive friends and family around you? You know, answering these, even these basic needs around you, right? About even just feed, f- feeding yourself and sleep and these kind of things. That, that's kind of, you know, we, we look at our hierarchy of needs. So try, try and address that first. If you're still not feeling good, try and see what you can do within your social needs. If you need to go out for fresh air and things like that, every little act you do for yourself is considered a self-care. You know, I know lots of people have the idea that, oh, it's a bubble bath. You know, it's something very luxurious. It's a spa day. No, it can literally be as simple as just like opening up a magazine and vegging out or just eating a sandwich that day because you haven't eaten because you haven't had time for you. You haven't made time for yourself. It's that simple. So prioritize yourself in whatever way. Do what makes you feel good. Um, Seek help. Seek help. Do not hesitate in seeking help. It's so important. And through those things, you learn coping strategies, actually, because um, therapy is also very individualized. So it caters to whatever you need at that time. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach, and I think that's one of the the great things about therapy it is all about you so try and seek help in these ways if you can join support groups if that's something that feels in alignment to you um but you know i would say sort of yeah but but more importantly you know try and address those basic needs first 
and then kind of go from there. Because even with depression, um, addressing your basic needs is very difficult, you know? Sure, absolutely. Alia, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Really a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, thank you mm-hmm. very much for your yeah. insight and uh, and all the tips uh, that you actually provided. Have a lovely weekend. Uh, peace be with you. All right. Take care. Jazakallah. Salam. Peace be with you. So that was Alia Sami, who is a counsellor um, <coughs> here in the UK. Let me now go straight to our second guest, who is Dr. David Cox, um, who is a freelance health journalist and a neuroscientist who works for a range of national newspapers, including Telegraph, The Guardian, and the BBC. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome, sir. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you very much for joining us. So firstly, tell me, uh, neuroscience, you you studied neuroscience and then you became a journalist. (laughs) I've been playing for for a long time. So while I was working as um, an academic researcher, studying depression and I was also like writing health columns about the things I was studying, and then yeah, the last seven years I've been a full-time freelance journalist. Right. Okay. So, uh, so tell me, what what sort of causes do you write about? Uh, mental health can be a pretty broad topic. Yeah, I mean, I, I cover mental health. But I also cover all aspects of health. You know, and one of the interesting things is that so many of those feed into mental health, from diet to exercise. To many, many different things, different psychological like approaches. So, yeah, it's um, it's a broad area. Um, we were talking to our earlier guest about um, social media and the influence that social media can have on you, um, especially teenagers, but even adults. What are your thoughts on how we manage that? Yeah, I think social media can be very damaging in many ways. I mean, I think it, it hacks our attention span. And I think that can really have like a big impact on our mental health. And also as well, I think just that constant like the, you know, comparison like to through what you're seeing like sort of on social media, it can really like sort of, I don't know, amplify those negative inner voices in your head. So I think that social media can have great benefits, but it's also something which you need to, you know, like to apply with moderation and take a break from sometimes if, if necessary. How does... Um in your experience, past trauma or adverse childhood experiences contribute to depression? I mean, there's a huge link between trauma and depression. So traumas are just a very strong, both physical and emotional response to some events, such as, you know, like so something which has happened in someone's childhood or likes of teenage years, such as a parent dying or you know, it can, all, all kinds of different trauma. And when that happens, both the brain and the body go into survival mode, which leads to, in the short term, you get symptoms like shock and sadness, anger, anxiety. But because it's such a strong physical response, that can lead to a lot of mental burnout in the long term. And younger people, I think, are particularly prone to developing depression after, after trauma. David, is <clears throat> depression dealt with differently depending on the generation or is that something across that i mean is a is a unified standardized approach um or, or did i get that wrong i mean I, I i think there are things which you know can apply to someone who's 18 who's got depression which can also apply just as effectively to someone who's 14 who's got depression i mean i think funnily enough actually younger younger patients are maybe a little bit more vulnerable because, you know, they've yet to learn those coping mechanisms and, you know, their minds aren't like sort of kind of able to kind of like adapt to, you know, 
brain chemistry altering trauma. So um, I think we do have to be like more careful in the way we treat like the younger patients, but there's similar principles can benefit people of all ages. What do you think? You're 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 obviously providing education um, uh, through through journalism in this very important area and, um, and and talking about it, which I think is all we need. What are your thoughts on 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 formalizing this education a little more? I was talking to the earlier guest about uh, about doing this um, probably at the primary school level, uh, giving pupils the uh, the understanding of what depression is and um, uh, and that it's just uh, another illness. Yes, I mean, I think um, perhaps primary school is a little bit like the kind of too early, like for the children to really like to perhaps understand that concept. But I think definitely like so from early and secondary school, because, you know, that's about the age when people can really like start like to, you know, developing symptoms of depression. And I think it's important like so that all like sort of adolescents know the importance of like speaking out when they're like sort of in trouble and, you know, how to recognize that others who are experiencing going through difficulties. I mean, I do, I do think that can be very important. And also ways in which all of us can, you know, benefit our mental health. Yeah, go ahead. Now, <clears throat> David, you um, you wrote a piece in The Guardian, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, about mental health apps and, and the market. Um, just for the benefit of, of our listeners, what, what exactly, um, did, I mean, what did you write about? Because uh, you mentioned that it is going to be worth roughly around 14 billion pounds here in the UK but it's not as good and as easy as it looks because the first thing that people resort to these days is Dr. Google is to find any online self-help but uh, there's, there's an approach to that as well isn't it? Yes I mean I think that there's a big problem because there's huge numbers of that basically like just being developed and there's no regulation at all so anyone with enough money can put an app out there. They don't have to do anything to say this app actually likes to, you know, treats these symptoms in this way. So a lot of the apps which are out there, they don't, they're not actually evidence-based. There's no real, like, data to show that they actually work or do anything. And a lot of them could simply be wasting people's time, basically. Hmm. Um, so that's one problem. Another problem is the fact that a lot of them are actually taking your very sensitive personal data and sharing it with advertisers as ways of like to making money. And that's something which I think a lot of people, particularly if you have like a mental health condition, you know, will be very concerned about. You don't want your data being used like sort of against you. So regulators, including here like sort of in the UK and the, in the US, are looking at ways of how we can try and like sort of police this industry like a little bit more because at the moment it's a little bit of a wild west. David, um, you were a freelance journalist for some of the national newspapers. Do you think the media is doing enough talking about education um, by investing in, in in people like you? You and but uh, I, you know I say that, but you're just a freelance journalist. So, number one, are there more of you, uh, and are there people who are permanently employed by these uh, these media outlets as well to to educate people? Um, yeah, well, obviously all, 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 all newspapers, all like some um, broadcasters, they all have a dedicated health correspondent, but there's only so much that one health, health mm. correspondent can do. So there's, there's a team of specialists like me who focus like some on health and we work for like the multiple lights of platforms. And I find that quite good because there's stories, you know, which you can write about on mental health for the Guardian, which, you know, you maybe couldn't do like some in the Daily Mail and 
vice versa. You can write different things with different different publications. Speaking about health, I mean, um, food and your intake, your diet, your exercise, health, and whatnot, all of these things, they also contribute to, to mental health. What What is it that you have have noticed, or have you researched or, or written about, maybe, what people can do to, to make an improvement to, to their over, overall mental health or even physical health that can contribute to, to their mental health? Yeah, this is a really fascinating area. So I did a story last summer for The Telegraph called How to Be Happy, And one of the things I covered in that was um, sleep regularity. There's been a lot of evidence in the last couple of years that regular sleep patterns with going to bed and waking up at roughly the same time each day is really beneficial for your body and your mind because your brain kind of gets used to the regular pattern. And our bodies, our bodies like rhythms. They don't like, you know, having something different happening, like different patterns like every day. So that's one thing which, which can really be beneficial. Um, another really interesting area, they call it um, psychobiotics. And this is all about how your gut is very much connected to your brain. So what you eat has a huge impact on your mental health because it's basically going to be broken down by bacteria in your, in your gut into different chemicals that then go to your brain. So if you're eating a lot of ultra-processed foods, you're going to be getting negative harmful chemicals that go into your brain that cause inflammation, and then that can predispose you to getting depression. If you're eating a lot of fiber, a lot of fermented foods, that, that encourages the growth of much healthier bacteria in your gut, and those produce um, chemicals which can repair damage to your brain and have a lot of positive effects. So, yeah, one of the, there's so much benefit for just eating more foods containing fiber, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, things like that. So on, on that on that sleep pattern, if I if I may ask again, is it is it the um the hour or, or the amount of sleep that you have, or just regularity in the sleep that you have? Funnily enough, we've learned a lot about this in the last year, and I think it's it, it's actually the regularity which is the most important. So if you're going to bed at 10 p.m. and you know, like so even if you say only sleep until like six, like so some days. You know, or you have to, or you sleep until five in the morning. It's just having that kind of regularity mm-hmm. going to bed at r- roughly the same time, like the kind of each night. That's almost more important than the amount of hours you sleep. What about uh, staying up late as a as a routine? Is that is that good for your mental uh, health? It is a routine. <laughs> <laughs> it's a routine. I mean, I think if you're going to bed at three a.m. and like waking up at like eleven a.m. at Easter, I, I mean, I think I, you know, I don't think. That is particularly like the kind of healthy because mm. it disrupts a lot of like the kind of, of your body's natural rhythms. Your body likes to do things like in the morning. Um, I think it's more but then the other harmful thing is like if one night you go to bed at like ten thirty and the next night you go to bed at four AM and you kind of have a very erratic routine yeah. like that, that is also quite bad. It's interesting because for us as Muslims, it's it's all about regularity. When we look at the five daily prayers, mm. it's it's you know these prayers are set. Of course, they change here and, and there. Starts early lot. morning. Yeah, yeah, it starts early morning, and then you're also encouraged um, to to go to sleep early. I mean, mm. <laughs> you have that regularity, David. Um, yeah, that that is quite interesting. One last thing that uh, I would like to ask from my side. Um, we asked Ali, sister Ali, about this as well. Um, w- are there any early intervention strategies strategies available for parents? Um, is you know, I'm not talking about parents who have you know teenager kids, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, who are 
perfectly fine and perfectly able to to articulate themselves or you can see clearly but how early does that start now i mean when we see some of the issues that we face as a society the numbers are going down in the sense that it's 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 starting at a earlier age uh, every you know a few decades how how does that look with with mental health uh, illnesses I mean, I mean, yeah, you you can see lots of um, you know children as young as eleven, twelve already likes to kind of presenting sometimes with symptoms, you know, relating to depression. I mean, often these it, these start in very like mild ways. Hmm. The thing which might happen like first is this withdrawal. Like you just suddenly notice that your child, say they've always loved playing the piano or playing a particular sport, and they're suddenly they have no interest in doing that anymore. That's one of the earliest kind of warning signs to come like the look out for and then you might notice that they just seem to be regularly like this more irritable or more sad changes in appetite that's like a big one you know changes in their sleep patterns i mean often parents tend to just pick up these things at a bit of a later stage when you know teenagers um you know it's not wanting to do anything at all and that's a much more severe sign of depression so i think if you can detect like this different changes and, and parents will know their children very well better better than anyone but, you know noticing like some unusual like some changes at the early stages more you can do to try and things in the bud before they get worse david hmm. final question for me um therapy is almost being presented as the panacea now for treating depression how can somebody find the right therapist or the right therapy um therapeutic approach to 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 meet their needs i mean i think you have to find sometimes just a little bit of a trial and error just finding kind of like what works for you but i mean i think perhaps like the finding a therapist in your area like who you feel like to you know your your child like your family will be able to like to relate to someone with a similar background will like to understand much more about what you're going through So I think that is one thing which is really key to do when when finding a therapist. Excellent. David, thank you so very much sir, for joining us. Really a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, all the best with all the great work that you're doing, writing about this, um, educating people. Um, really thank you for all the efforts and peace be with you. Thank you too. Thank you so much for having me. Have a lovely weekend. So that was uh, David Cox, who is a freelance journalist. Dr. David Cox. Dr. David Cox, sorry. <laughs> Uh, who writes for um, newspapers like Telegraph, Guardian, and the and the BBC? The Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, "The greatest reward comes with the greatest trial. When Allah loves the people, He tests them. Whoever accepts that wins His pleasure, but whoever is discontent with that earns His wrath." Now, th- all of these things that both Alia and um, Dr. David Cox had to say. a lot of these things resonate with the teachings of of Islam that were given to us 14 centuries ago absolutely by the Holy sorry Prophet. to sorry to interrupt you i mean there was something that absolutely i found fascinating from what uh, dr david cox um, mentioned and he talked about uh, you know eating the right foods because that might have an effect yeah. on your mental health and that takes me really straight to the quran which prohibits um Uh, alcohol for one thing yeah. which we all know can have very damaging consequences on your mental health and also um uh, it prohibits muslims from eating pork and so you know so i've always thought and we've always sort of taught 
that um, you know when you you um, when you eat something which is harmful that that can have bad physical effects mm. on you and could cause diseases, could cause other things. But you know, to, I was really fascinated to hear today from a neuroscientist that it can actually have an effect on yeah. your mental health as well. And you know, the Prophet Sasaya, the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, has a Mazalam with the Hunumbi peace. He's he's written about this. Yeah. In the philosophy of the teachings of Islam, um, the impact of food and and the intake of food that you have on on your spiritual on your thinking on, on your, your spiritual thinking, being on yeah. your spiritual yeah. being as yeah. well. Yeah. And while they were talking, I mean, I, I just couldn't remember for the life of me. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, there, there was there was one dish which was made of wheat and barley. Um, which he w- said something about it. I, I just can't remember. I tried to look for it, um, but I just couldn't remember the name. But the the gist of the story is that Hazrat Aisha, his wife, may Allah be pleased with her, with her, she would make that um, for for the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings mm. of Allah. And he he actually really liked it because he said that it has an impact on on your physical as well as on on your spiritual mental health basically you know, along these lines but i i'll have to look for it but anyways but there was something the relationship the correlation between food and 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 your mental health as well as your spiritual health which is quite fascinating and then again when we had the prayers uh, or the regularity in sleep this is also something that we've heard from the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him to to go to sleep early after the night prayer so isha mm-hmm. you shouldn't waste your time you shouldn't be you know uh, just for hours and hours involved in gossip and what not um so yeah again so this is 14 centuries ago and we're finding out these things today interesting isn't it yeah absolutely interesting that um uh, interesting also that science is now proving all those things which yeah. are mentioned in the scriptures, mentioned in the books of Hadith, mentioned in the writings of the Promised Messiah, uh, uh, writings which were also, you know, 150 years-ish old. Uh, Quran is obviously 1,400 years old. And and see, you know, this is also one of the things that a lot of teenagers are facing difficulty with, this balance between what science is telling them and what their faith is telling them. Mm. So mm. There's this, this dogma and this dichotomy pre- that you find exactly. sometimes. So yeah. what, what the imam tells them in the mosque that mm. if there's anything against Islam and science is telling you this, you need to discard that. How, yeah. do, you, how do you justify that? How do you come to a conclusion that no, it, it cannot be two different things? Like, like this imam or, or whoever this, this chap was who said that, you know, if you have depression, yeah. you're a loser. Yeah. Stop whining. Be a man, man up. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So. I mean, this again, it's 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 downplaying it. I mean, we find in, in the history of Islam, we find in the history of faith and the history of, of, of people in general, the Holy Quran speaks about it. We started off the show with Prophet Jacob and then also the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Grief is also one of the things that can catch you and that can hold you in its band for, for months, if not years, mm. or even a lifetime. And the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he went through that. He lost his daughter, he lost his son, he lost his friends, he lost his relatives. And of course, he showed his sadness. And the companions around him, they saw that as well. Mm. And uh, this is one famous example of that one woman who was crying over the grave of, of of her child. And extensively, I mean, she was really wailing and lamenting. And the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he told her to to ha- to show patience. Mm. 
And now she did not know that was the prophet, and she mm. said, "Well, what do you know about the loss of a child? <laughs> yeah. How how do you know? You 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 know? I don't know if you've experienced that or not." Yeah. She didn't see and she didn't hear who it was, and funnily enough, it was the prophet. And he said, "Well, I think he knew exactly what <laughs> loss means, uh, being you know half orphan at the age of yeah. six, uh, full orphan at the age of six, uh, and then losing his uncle, losing his grandfather, and losing, as I said, so many of of his loved ones." But again, despair not of the mercy of the love of Allah. When we speak and when we read the chapters of the Quran, again, this is this has also a soothing effect. You know what will help you. You know what what will have an impact on you. And and again, the disclaimer is there. Always do consult your GP. Make sure that you seek professional help. This is not something which people can just brush off. Oh, it doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. It's just a phase. It's as you know, Alia mentioned as well. This is real, and there is no doubt about that. So, besides the spiritual help, besides the 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 help that you can get from your faith, you need to make sure that you do get professional help uh, for your the the physical side of the physical body that you have. Absolutely, yeah. You you've got to you've got to take care of yourself. Uh, that's what. Um, uh that's what the islamic teaching also is you've got to spend time exercising you've got to um yeah, you've got to eat not only regularly you've got to have a balanced diet you've got to eat the right foods i mean exactly the kind of things uh that uh, dr david cox was talking about so yes you've got to take care of yourself you've got to take care of uh, the people around you you've got to spread education you've got to uh let people know that yeah it's it's okay to be it's just like, it's just like another condition it's it's just like any any phys- physical condition it's just a chemical it's it's a hormone imbalance and anybody can have that and god is not upset with you i mean i've heard this as well <laughs> that people say oh well, god must be upset you yeah. must have done something to upset god that he sent this to thank words. god brother no. kayum is not here today he <laughs> he would have gone on for another hour about that i know <laughs> don't worry he's listening <laughs> you'll get the comments next week <laughs> but he but this is this is also something that i've heard personally as well yeah. um but that is not the case when we look towards the quran when we look towards that book where we know and 100% firmly believe that every sentence every word every letter of that is sent by god almighty and 113 chapters start within the name of allah the gracious the merciful and chapter 94 it's a, such a wonderful wonderful um uh, chapter it talks about have we not opened for the thy bosom this is from chapter 94 verses 1 to um 9 or 10 and says have we not opened for thee thy bosom and removed from thee thy burden which had well nigh broken thy back and we exalted thy name surely there is ease after hardship i surely there is ease after hardship twice god almighty mentions this so when thou art free start strive hard and to thy lord do thou attend wholeheartedly commenting on this the promised messiah the founder of the ahmadiyya muslim community He he has said and this is in the Urdu in front of me I'm just translating as we go along he said that all the the joy and all the happiness all the satisfaction comes after sorrow comes after sadness and this is the reason why the holy quran has mentioned this this rule basically or or this this um the sentence that inna ma'al usri yusra that surely ease yeah. comes after hardship if we did not have 
any sorrow, if we do not have any any uh, kind of sadness before our happiness, then that happiness would not remain happy. We, we wouldn't know the, the value, we wouldn't cherish that happiness and that joy if there was not the other side of it. I'm reminded of, uh, of a quote from, a, from an American president. Um, I may have uh, uh, mentioned this before in one of the shows. Um, uh, he said, you will, unless you've been to the deepest valleys, mm-hmm. you will never know how beautiful it is to be on the highest mountain. Indeed. That's what it so is. you've got to, and it also reminds me of a of a quote from uh, the fourth head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mizadai, may Allah have mercy on his soul. And he mentioned life's like seasons, um, just like there's seasons of, yeah. in a year. You know, sometimes you're spring, sometimes you're winter, sometimes you're autumn in life. And there's no disease that God Almighty has not created a cure for. Yeah. And the same goes for depression. We're going to go to the 5 o'clock news and then we'll be back after that. You're listening to The Draft Time Show today with myself, Reza and Brother Daniel. Don't go anywhere. Stay with us. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon you all. Welcome back to the Draft Time Show here on the Voice of Islam. Now, in this part of the program, we are going to talk about the International Women and Sciences Day, which is going to be celebrated on the 11th of February, which is this coming Sunday. Now, this day is a reminder that women and girls play a very critical role in science and technology communities and that their participation should be strengthened. Although science, tech, engineering and mathematics, which we know as the STEM fields, they're widely regarded as critical to national economies. So far, most countries, no matter their level of development, have not yet fully achieved gender equality in these STEM fields. The ninth International Day of Women and Girls in Science Assembly will take place on the 8th and 9th of Feb, and the location is at the United Nations headquarters in New York City. Individuals, they sign up to join this event where they will be surrounded with women in science leaders and experts from around the world, high-level government officials, representatives of you know, many international organizations, of course, as well as the private sector. And everyone will gather to discuss women leadership in achieving three pillars of sustainable development. Number one, economic prosperity. Number two, social justice. And number three, environmental integrity. Now, according to the United Nations, the gender equality has always been a core issue for the United Nations. And that is in 2024. However, 
The same cannot be said about the teachings of Islam or the teachings of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, from over 1400 years ago. In the Holy Quran, for example, in chapter 4, verse 125, God Almighty states, But whoso does good work, whether male or female, and is a believer, such shall enter heaven, and shall not be wronged even as much as the little hollow in the back of a date stone. In relation to one's spirituality and relationship with God Almighty, there is complete, 100% equality between the genders. Apart from that, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we know as the liberator of women. In a society where women, I mean, forget about studying, forget about education, that was... Something people could only dream of, the women could only dream of. But simple things such as the role of a mother in the education and the decision-making of their children was uh, a taboo topic, which, which was controlled only by the men. You talk about inheritance. You talk about self-determination. All of these things were so far for the women of the pre-Islamic society that you cannot even imagine. Their rights, completely non-existent. Um, everything was decided by the, the men in the society. And then in, in the midst of this comes a man who says, no, it's not just an option for a woman to uh, acquire knowledge. No, it's a duty. And he said it is the duty of every Muslim man and every Muslim woman to acquire knowledge. A mother has been given the status or the rank of someone who has paradise underneath her feet. They are responsible for raising the next generation, a generation that will be taking care of this earth, will be taking care of this planet, will be taking care of the societies that they live in. And if they do not have uh, ample representation, if they do not have the freedom, the right, or even the obligation in this case, to acquire knowledge, to make something out of their life, to know what this world is based on how this world runs and how we can make this world a better place, then the chances of the next generation growing up in a society or building a society which uh, is based on um, mutual respect, mutual tolerance and acceptance, those chances are very slim to none. His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, the fifth successor to the Promised Messiah, the Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he stated that, remember that the key for any nation to thrive and progress lies in the hands of the mothers of that nation. And reiterating the importance of educating women as well as men. Female researchers tend to have shorter, less well-paid careers and their work, their work is often underrepresented in high-profile journals and are usually overlooked when owed a promotion. In cutting-edge fields such as artificial intelligence, only one in five professionals is a woman. Even now, women only make up to 28% of engineering graduates and 40% of graduates in computer science and informatics. Um, 
we spoke to uh, a computer science graduate working as a software engineer at Sky for those and asked her uh, about her experiences in that field, how her studies went and what the situation in the work field is right now here in the UK. And this is what Firdos had to say to us. Joining us on the Drive Time Show is Firdos. She's a computer science graduate and currently employed as a software engineer. Firdos, assalamu alaikum, peace upon you. Welcome to the Drive Time Show. And thank you so much for agreeing to do this. It's great to be here. Thanks. Can I start off by asking you something that is probably on a lot of people's minds. Do you think that there is a there is equal emphasis in society for both boys and girls to take up STEM subjects? Or do you think that this is, we're still far away from that? Um, so I think, well, in my experience, I've seen um, a lot more push for girls nowadays to be um, uh, in kind of STEM subjects. Uh, they'll have like events or um, there's just generally a bit more of a push. For example, there's like um, getting into tech boot camps that some organizations uh, run uh, or like women in tech communities um, hold events and stuff. Um, so there's definitely a push that we can see nowadays for that. There's still a difference um, in terms of uh, it's less expected of females to study STEM, STEM subjects. Like it's not seen as strange, but it's seen as a bit like unique and rare that, oh, okay, studying that, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, you personally... How, if I may ask, how long have you been working as a software engineer um, and that experience of yours as a woman working and learning in this field, how how has that been? Um, so I graduated in July and I started working uh, in September, so a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, the experience has been like very male-dominated, as you can imagine. So like uh, I started, I chose computer science for A-levels and there was like three girls in my class, um, but it was a girls' school, so we were the only people in the class. Um, and then, yeah, all the way until um, now, even my team now, um, I'm working on a team of eight people, and I'm the only female. Um, so, yeah, there is a lot more females working in tech now, but you kind of have to go out of your way to find it. Like, you have to join women in tech communities or networks or societies and things like that to um, find those females. So there is more females working in tech, but um not not like uh you, you'll have to be able to look for them actively exactly. to find them, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly so in that group of of yours where you being the only woman have you ever in the past couple of months or since you started have you ever felt that you had to prove your capabilities more than than your male colleagues your male counterparts uh not exactly i guess um we're given the same opportunities and things, but you do always have kind of like a imposter syndrome, if that's what it's called, where you feel like, oh, um, you know, I have to, you know, make sure I prove myself and stay on top of it and don't fall behind the rest and, you know, put in more work, I guess. But um, uh, for example, like um, when I first got the job, I was told, oh, maybe you got it because you're a female. So it's like, oh, that got me thinking, oh, maybe I was just given this opportunity because I'm a female and Muslim work in, in tech. But- you, had to, you had to fill the quota, eh? Yeah, exactly. So I was like, oh, maybe I was just a box that they had to tick. So um, I was like, well, if it still got me, you know, this opportunity, then I'm grateful. But um, it is interesting to think about that. Um, but after I joined the company, I realized, oh, this is quite diverse. And it's like, um, it's, you know, maybe I was picked because of my skills and not because I was just a box. But um, but yeah, within the particular team, I am the only thing. 
So in this world that we live in, as you mentioned, there 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 are a lot more women in STEM fields as well. You have big tech companies, you have uh, CEOs. Um, I'm I'm just thinking, for example, I'm not sure if you've heard about it, but the Web Summit, for example, it's it's one of those um, summits where a lot of these tech companies do come together. Um, people with backgrounds in STEM fields and, and STEM research and whatnot, and that summit is now led by by a woman. So, in in your opinion, um, how can educational institutions better encourage, better support women in STEM fields, and, and maybe even um, attract um, in, into these fields? Yeah, I think what you mentioned is is kind of the most important. Like um, like I said, there was a lot of uh, events and um, kind of a push towards uh, females in tech nowadays. But um, I think role models is quite a key key part of it um if you see other females that have done this or have done that like you it's more relatable that way so for example i remember in uni um we had a talk uh from someone who already graduated and she was a female and she was muslim and but she wasn't there to talk about women in tech she was just talking about her experience about i think she was a, a project she was working on or something so seeing that i was like oh okay like it's nice to see someone that kind of you know represents me also um so i can relate to you so that kind of yeah it was quite encouraging so um if uh younger girls have more of that then it's will definitely encouraging if you don't mind me picking up from what you've just said you know about that experience that she was also a muslim um on a personal level you being a muslim you being in that field apart from that that experience as a woman and and that encourage encouragement that 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 should be there for a woman, but then on top of that, being a Muslim woman, what would be your advice to to young women and then specifically young Muslim women, maybe considering a, a career in computer science or, or or any other STEM disciplines? Um, I think if they're considering it, they should 100% do it. If it's something you're enjoying, something um, you're interested in, 100% go for it. Uh, it's a career with a lot of opportunities and you know, you can reach as far as teach yourself. So it's it's endless. Um, it is, like we said, quite male dominated. And but we think that is quickly changing. And hopefully you'll, you'll see the difference yourself. But um, as long as you kind of surround yourself with some uh, females or go out of your way to find them, um, just so it's not as lonely. But um, so for example, in, um, in university, um, yes, there was a lot more males, but with a small group of females, we kind of became closer because we were the only ones. All right, great. Rizos, thank you very much for your time. Uh, great to speak to you and we wish you all the best uh, and uh, all all good luck for, for the future. And uh, thank you so much once again, Jazakallah, for, for your time. Assalamu alaikum. All right, that was uh, for those who is currently working as a uh, software engineer. And thank God, I mean, for her experience has been quite positive so far. But as she mentioned, the the numbers are probably not as great for her as as a woman to have some sort of female colleagues. There is a common misconception at school or in life, maybe even that boys generally do better in maths and science, whilst girls tend to flourish in subjects relating to humanities or social studies, etc. From a biopsychological aspect, this has been disproven, as boys do not tend to have better built-in abilities in STEM. If you are a parent, 
of a boy and a girl, or if you are a parent of either and have maybe some sort of experience with someone having a girl or someone having a boy, depending on what you have, um, and how they're doing in school in early stages for, I'm talking about year one, two, and three, well, at least that's been my experience, um, you will notice that uh, it doesn't really make a difference. And usually at that point, not usually, but you will always have the odd ones here and there, but um, girls tend to be a lot more focused. They tend to be a lot more neat in their writing. They they tend to be a lot more... um, quicker sometimes even even in maths or in sciences and so this disparity that we see when children grow up when they go into the work field it can only be blamed as a as a societal construct so one may argue that there is evidence for girls generally achieving lower than boys in these subjects in these stem subjects but there can be many external contributing factors that are completely unrelated to, to, to intellect and to capability, something that we're talking about here. For example, girls, we know, typically perform as well as boys in coursework and class tasks, but it could be due to anxiety surrounding subjects more suited, um, tailored to, to boys that create these deficiencies during exams. Now, additionally, and that's something that and as for those as well, it may be that there is a lack of female role models for young girls. If I was to ask you right now on the spot, name me one of the top female scientists. Name me one of the top female developers in the field of AI. Name me one of the top female scientists of astrophysics or, or any kind of STEM subject you would have to think, you would have to think really, really hard to come up with a name. So it it is one of the reasons why we see the numbers and we see that deficiency in the numbers in um, these jobs when you know, people have grown up, when it comes to representation and that gender gap not being filled. Through the through his blessed guidance and and subs- subsequently through the caliphate in, in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, our Ahmadi women they came to understand the significance and the value of gaining an education and of seeking religious knowledge based on the verses of the Holy Quran, based on the narrations of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him that I've mentioned in the beginning. So certainly throughout its existence, the community, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has continue to promote and support the education of women and girls and many programs or schemes have been set up to facilitate this very task. A prime example are the schools and colleges established by the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with him, first in Qadian, which was the birthplace of the community where it all started off from, and then secondly in, in Rabwa, where after the split of India and Pakistan, the community moved towards. Now through these centers of learning, those girls who could not afford to travel to bigger cities to study, because let's face it, I mean, those are different societies, there's many problems attached to that. Those girls were then provided a proper education and were able to attain high standards of secular knowledge as well as religious teachings. And a huge added benefit of these schools and colleges was 
that these girls could attain education in a safe and moral environment rather than having to travel to towns or cities where such an atmosphere did not exist. Again, we're not talking about the UK. We're talking about, in this case, Gaudian or in Revo or in Pakistan or in India. So having the girls and having our girls, our sisters, educated in a safe and moral way was also a great challenge that that is also a great challenge that we that we face today especially here in western countries where the commonly held belief is that it is only due to the so-called freedoms that they have offered that uh, afforded that that they are progressing um we're going to continue with this after we've spoken to our next guest for today um, joining me now is one of CAMFED's young women leaders from Ghana. She collaborates with many young women in the CAMFED Association who have overcome significant barriers to succeed in STEM, STEM subjects. Esther Roxon is with us on the line. Esther, good afternoon. Peace upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, I mentioned CAMFED twice in your introduction but I will not take it away from you to introduce to our listeners and to tell our listeners what exactly CAMFED is. Okay, thank you once again for the opportunity and um, a lovely afternoon to all the listeners, those streaming live all over the world. Um, so CAMFED, the Campaign for Female Education, is an African-led movement working across Ghana, in Malawi, Tanzania, Zambia, and Zimbabwe, we have developed a proven solution that helps girls to thrive at school. And these girls are equipped um, with skills and community support they need to succeed. We are on a mission to support millions more vulnerable girls in rural Africa to learn and succeed in secondary school and gain the skills they need to transition to work and leadership through government partnerships, we are working to ensure that education systems better serve the needs of all children. Uh, myself, I received support from um, government, like you mentioned correctly, and um, I happen to be a member of our Pan-African Sisterhood, the Comfort Association of Women Leaders. Unlike thousands of others in the network, I trained as a learner guide so that I could accompany other girls and young women on their education and leadership journeys. And for this opportunity, I've been able to also impact the lives of other people. And so for me, I do not take comfort um, support for granted. And um, comfort is doing amazingly well in all the communities that they operate in. So Esther, you must come across many, um, many, many girls, many women who have um, the drive, who have the desire to undertake education in the STEM uh, STEM field uh, subjects. But they must also tell you, or you must have come across, some of the barriers, some of the challenges that prevent these girls from going into these fields. What what are those challenges? What are those barriers in your experience? Um, So um, in my experience, the financial challenges is one of the most paramount barriers that um, girls face in their quest to undertake education in the field of STEM. Um, families in rural communities in Africa um, struggle to have uh, three um, square meals a day, and um, let alone the ability to support their children's education. And in instances even where they have to make a choice between their boy child and girl child getting education in any field, um, check alone STEM, 
they are most likely to push for the boy child to mm. have that opportunity. And this is a big challenge that you do not find in just one home, but it's repeat across board. And then you talk about the challenge of stereotypes and gender norms, girls that may not be encouraged to pursue STEM subjects because traditionally um, STEM programs have been perceived as being male-dominated. And for girls who have mathematical abilities and even excel in STEM education, they may end up in different fields other than STEM because of this barrier. And um, the last um, challenge I would want to also talk about, in my experience, as a lack of role models, although there are some few women who are doing well, but there are not enough. Uh, there are not enough women in STEM to serve as role models to these young women and girls. And so, if girls and young women have no examples of women um, who are making an impact in the field of STEM, they are less likely to pursue an education in STEM. And, and for me, this is worrying. This is really, really worrying. So, what role? Do parents then play, or the, the the education of parents as well? In your case, uh, as you mentioned, uh, that, that many, apart from the financial side, it's also the choice that parents make if they have a boy or a girl. Does that responsibility lie on on the parents as well to be educated and 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 you know not not to pick only the boys for that? Um, a lot would have to be done because. For for the parent, there are two options. I mean, there are two options, yes. Hmm. It has to be either the boy child or the girl child. But what they need to be able to make that decision, that is the financial power yes. um, uh, or strength, is just one. And so, give or take, it's either they are going in for the girl child or boy child. And so, it's, it's a really difficult spot. And that is when the work of um, organizations like Comfort is really important when comfort step in to support or give help to these um, families that do not have even enough to feed on, it really goes a, a long way to help make um, the lives of these young girls better. And they grow and then also come to make the lives of other people better and even transform lives of their family members. Hmm. Now, you being one of Comfort's young women leaders from Ghana, as I mentioned, what in what ways have you or Camford, what, how have you contributed to breaking down barriers for young women in STEM? What What is it that you have achieved? So what the support that Camford um, has given, um, contributing to breaking barriers in STEM, and myself being um, one of the beneficiaries of Camford support, I'm able to also get um, the inspiration, the motivation to inspire other people uh, currently, when you come to where I live in Ghana, in the central part of Ghana, um, I serve as a mentor to other girls who happen to be a part of a robotic and um, a coding club. Hmm. Because these young girls, unlike some people who didn't get the opportunity, are now being given training in STEM-related um, skills and given some skills training so that when they grow up, they do not become like, um, should I say, put before them. And so that is the role I am playing. And it is not just myself, but other members of the Comfort Association who also received support from Comfort. And so in Ghana, talk of Dr. Joanna Gunab, who is a medical doctor and a passionate disability inclusion advocate, 
talk of um, Leticia Moore, who is also a welder, very skilled in what she does, and Fabricator, who is also running a successful um, metalworking business. All these young women coming together to make sure that the support comfort is given to us, we triple the effect to make sure that the next generation of the young leaders are not left behind. Hmm. Now, Esther, <clears throat> in your opinion, what strategies are most effective in, in fostering an interest in STEM subjects among girls at a young age? When we talk about, I mean, there's always issues when it comes to the work field. Yes, all of these things, they come later on. But to to just awaken that interest, to spark you know, that flame flame of interest in these subjects, that comes at a young age. So what can we do to to spark that interest? What can we do to 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 encourage girls at a young age uh, in developing that interest. Um, so, like you rightly mentioned, um, the statistics does not um, speak to our favor. Although we are pursuing the st- um, the STEM agenda when it comes to women inclusion, but we still can do more. And so, in my opinion, I believe financial support will go a long way to help girls because um, girls currently face complex barriers to education and in the context the comfort working meaning that fewer than five percent complete secondary school which is really alarming and uh, for comfort um, comfort provide girls with individualized financial and material support to attend and succeed in school and build a social support network around them and um, if we take out financial support the Making a, available more role models and mentors would also go a long way to help foster um, interest in STEM at an early age in these young girls. Uh, motivation for girls to the visibility of women in STEM fields, like I mentioned, that in Ghana we have uh, people who are in the medical space, in the um, welding and fabricating space, who are doing amazingly mm. well, who happen to be a part of the network. And also having study groups or STEM clubs. And so if you go to Comfort Support at Senior High School, we have clubs that have been formed by these beneficiaries. And so if you have guides like myself, I mentioned earlier that I was trained to become a Comfort Learner Guide um, after Senior High School. And so if you have guides like myself going back to our Senior High School or Community Senior High School, to inspire some of these young girls, encourage them to join um, STEM clubs, and also help form these um, robotic and coding clubs. It would help them at an early age to foster an interest in the field of STEM. Wonderful. Now, Esther, lastly, I want to ask you um, two things. One is, um, how important is it when, when you go back to these senior high schools, when you go back to these schools, how important is it for you to mention, to talk, to celebrate the accomplishments of women in STEM and also to show them role models, to show them that there are actually women out there that you can aspire after and it's not just uh, a field full, filled, with, filled with, and only for men? Um, that's a really, really great question. Um, for me, I think it's really, really important that we amplify the accomplishment of women in STEM using ourselves as role models, I mean, comfort um, members, comfort association members, using ourselves as role models and also 
making sure that these young girls have people they can look up to. Because for some girls, it is just the fear of the unknown. They think that their grandparents couldn't have it, their mothers couldn't have it, and so they can't just, um, they cannot be able to have it. They can't do it because they do not have examples. So when we have the opportunity to amplify the works that um, these young women are doing, it helps inspire other young girls to look up to these role models. And um, if you come to the Comfort Association in all the five countries that um, Comfort operates in, Whenever we have international, um, internationally designated days that are used to celebrate the achievements of women, talk of International Day of, um, of STEM, International Day of, of Women, we are able to um, tell other people, we are able to tell the world about the initiatives of Comfort Association members mm. that, that are impacting other generations. So I think these um, help a lot, and in this case, it helps us to amplify our belief that when you educate a girl, then everything changes. Wonderful. Esther, thank you very much for your time. One of Camfa's young women leader from Ghana, Esther Roxon, with us on the line. We wish you all the best for the future. Keep on inspiring those young girls and hopefully they will be able to change the future of Ghana and not just Ghana, but also the entire African continent. Thank you so much once again. Assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you. Thank you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That's what exactly what I was talking about before when His Holiness speaks about the future generation, that it is those girls, it's the mothers of tomorrow that can inspire, that can change the the, the layout and the setup of the world uh, that we see today. The National Grid calls for more girls to embrace the net zero challenge as the UK faces a green skills gender gap problem. Here in the UK, the transition to net zero will create hundreds, if not thousands of green jobs. Uh, you have positions in agriculture, in manufacturing, R&D, administrative, uh, administrative and surface, uh, service activities, which are aimed at substantially preserving or you know, restoring environmental quality. However, according to the Boston Consulting Group, only a quarter of these jobs could be taken by women by the year 2030. And this would delay the progress towards gender equality by up to 15 years. In fact, current data shows that the UK is facing a gender green skills gap. Representation of women in STEM-based careers is low, with females making up just a quarter 26% 26% to be honest of the UK's STEM workforce this is up but it's up merely 5% from the 2016 numbers and the organization STEM Women estimates that we will not see equal gender representation in STEM careers until it's not 2030 not 2040 2070 2070 Yet, research shows that 80% of young girls want their career to make a positive contribution to society, and 80%, 83% of women want to help the UK reach its net zero target, which is why, on the International Day of the Girl, the National Grid is issuing a call for girls to embrace STEM-based careers and become the future female leaders of the UK's energy transition and is also announcing its aim to increase its STEM-based apprenticeship in 2024 by 18% on last year's levels and four times its 2020 levels. One last thing that I want to mention from 
the national grid. Uh, Alice Delahunty, who is the president of the National Grid Electricity Transmission, said, It's essential that we inspire young women to consider jobs and careers in energy and showcase everything they can experience and achieve. National Grid is the heart of the UK's energy transition, and we need big thinkers, innovators and builders to lead and support us on this journey. This is why we are working hard to break down the barriers that prevent girls from taking up STEM-based careers. Our next guest for today is a space engineer and the CEO of Luono Space. Uh, Luno Space, Mark Viviano is with us on the line. Mark, good afternoon. Peace upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Hello. Thank you very much for having me today. How are you doing? Good to have you. I'm very well. Thank you so much. Um, L- Luno Space, tell me a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Luno Space was um, a company that was an idea to bring more people towards STEM. And then slowly it became an initiative, but then it became a company. And right now the main objective is to bring more people, more diverse people, more inclusivity towards STEM. And the main way to do this is through space education. Hmm. And the reason behind this is because I'm a space engineer. Um, I've seen how space inspired me throughout the years. And so I know that that is powerful. I know that is it can generate new new brains. It can change the world and society. Um, and also, there was reports from UK Space Agency and the government saying how space can inspire. And this is why basically we founded Lunar Space. Um, today, our main goal is to inspire as many people as possible. And the main thing is that we start from a very young age, mm-hmm. uh, from four years old up to nine years old, and then potentially also adults one day. Uh, starting from the very young children, young women, young young men, hmm. possibly, if we can change society for good. So, so it's a good thing that you mentioned, because when we think about space, when we think about space engineering, uh, I know a lot of people are going to hate me for this, but we don't really think of girls, we don't really think of women. So hmm. are there any initiatives that you at Luno Space have taken to promote maybe gender diversity and inclusion within the company, particularly in STEM roles you mentioned at the mm-hmm. early ages, at the young ages, but then, you know, life happens, people grow up, and that interest, how, how do you keep that interest? Yeah, the keeping the interest is the, the, the main difficulty, the main challenge for, for us. Because it's impossible to say you have to become a space engineer hmm. at four years old. They, they would definitely change. I've changed many times, but <laughs> eventually I went to the space sector. But I wanted to become a lawyer, then um, astrophysicist, and then I became a space engineer. Um, today, what we're trying to do is we try to represent as many people as possible, as many diverse people as possible. So through role models, hopefully we can inspire young girls to uh, to become astronauts, to become scientists. Hmm. Um, if you think about five years ago, um, in 2019, we, we, we produced the, the first photo of a black hole, for example, and that was a woman who led the team. And many, many hmm. years ago, we had the first um, uh, woman to make contributions towards the DNA and how it's uh, structured. Uh, it was women who brought astronauts on, onto the moon during the Apollo 11 mission. So by bringing role models to these young girls, hopefully we can definitely tell them, look, these women have done incredible, difficult things in the past. You can do this in the future. Yeah. 
And I think that's what 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 the what the secret is probably because the importance of a mentorship, the the sponsorship yeah. programs for women pursuing careers in STEM. But at the same time, you can have all the programs that you want, but if there is no no aspiration because there's no role models, no leadership, no people that they can look up to, then those programs might not be that successful, isn't it? That is very true. Um, I must admit, in the UK, there's a few initiatives and companies that are actually really working hard towards bringing more women and more diverse people towards STEM. Um, but that, that that's not enough because as of today, it's about 29% of the space industry is, com- is made of women and yeah. 29% is not even close to half of the uh, the, the workforce. So where is the problem? Where exactly can we improve? Where exactly can we um, bring more challenges and more more role models and potentially more more people? Hmm. Uh, is you know it's an ongoing process that sure. will take time, but it's important that as a collective we we do something. Yeah. It's not just us companies or um, schools and educators, but as a collective, we need to include more women, for example. And not look at them as something that is not meant to be there. But you must have seen a shift. You must have seen some improvement in mm. in representation because when we look at, you know, I mentioned these numbers just before we we got you on. Um, the it's 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 a slight increase. We're looking at some percentage, um, but it's, I'm sure there's something that 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 you must have noticed. Mm-hmm. So I actually have seen change. I've seen a change, but it's still not enough. But mm-hmm. it's a change, and I'm really happy to see it. Um, a few years ago, I graduated from um, in Italy in computer science. So listening to uh, the software engineer earlier, sorry, I forgot the name, but about how she graduated in computer science and then went to software engineering, and there was basically not women, I can see that I was there. Yeah. Uh, possibly that we are on the same age. Um, but now I can see more women in the industry. I can see more women taking challenges and becoming project managers, CEOs, managing directors. I see women taking leaders, leadership positions, which a few, even a few years ago wasn't really possible, I think. So there is a, there is a change. Change is happening. Yeah. And there's astronauts on the ISS, for example, taking leadership. Um, there will be women on the moon now hmm. in, in a couple of years. So there is a change. It will continue to change, but we must not stop. This is now the time to push more. Now, Mirko, one last question. Maybe mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a little bit... No, it's actually not off topic, but how do you see this? I mean, I've heard people say that, oh, it's it's a competition, we want to compete with each other. That's not the case, isn't it? Because everybody brings something to the table that furthers the cause, that furthers the mm-hmm. projects and, and, and contributes to the project that you work on. So you have different approaches, you know, men and women, um, and they both bring something of value to the table, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. Um, in Lunar Space, for example, we are quite a diverse team. Um, and I truly believe in it because different people will bring different perspectives different ideas, different kind of, mm. different ways of thinking, um, which 
I truly like, and especially, for example, at the European Space Agency, you see all European minds working together, different accents, different different ways of thinking. And I think that is the most beautiful thing to do because yeah. you can definitely see that there's a, there's a mutual interest to taking a challenge, taking the risk of doing something difficult, but doing it together and it becomes easier. So there is competition, but it's a good competition. It's because I want to prove myself and I want to prove that I'm capable of doing things and there's nothing wrong with it. Mm. But then toxic uh, competition is where <laughs> you, you yeah. become toxic and uh, not so great. And that's not but what we're talking about. <laughs> you're definitely not. Collaboration, bringing more diversity, yes. that is what we're talking about, what we like to see. Wonderful. Definitely. Mirko Viviano, thank you very much for your time, sir. We wish you all the best for the future as well. Hopefully, thank you very much we'll, for having we'll me. see that change yeah. uh, that we are just talking about. Thank you so much once again. Thank you very much. Have a great one. Take care. Bye-bye. 0208687 There you have it. Ferdinand was talking about it. Esther was talking about it as well as Mirko right now. That um, the, the possibilities are there. The chances are there. The projects are there. The opportunities are there. But it's uh, not only or not uh, all about the lack of role models, but it's also the pursuing of that career to spark that interest in your child. It's not, as we know, um, decades ago, only a male-dominated career or field, which I could understand at this point. You don't want to go in an environment which you don't agree with, which where you don't feel comfortable Yes, you will always have those who are a bit strong-minded and they will have to prove that and they would like to prove that, yes, a woman can do that as well, but that's definitely not the space that we live in now. However, it's about advancing together as a society and making the best out of what we have. In terms of importance of seeking knowledge, the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmood Ahmed, may Allah be pleased with him, once remarked that until 100% of our you know, Ahmadi women, me- members of the community, were fully educated, it would be impossible to train the youth of our community. Now this comment was steeped in truth and wisdom. If 10%, 20%, or even 50 or 60% of our women are well-educated and knowledgeable and raise their children in the best fashion, it will still not be enough. The reason is that their children will meet other you know, children, other Amdi children whose mothers are not educated or do not have sufficient well, religious knowledge or worldly knowledge, and such children will have a negative effect on them. So when we speak about, and I think this is something that we've mentioned throughout the show as well, when we spoke to our guests as well, these female role models who have paved the way for girls today, do we see them? If so, where are they? What are their names? And the question that I asked you before as well, that if I was to ask you a question about a, a prominent female scientist or space engineer or um astrophysicist it it would be difficult for a lot of people to to come up with a name so in recent years women have begun to readdress the balance with a 31% increase in entries from women and girls looking to complete stem related a levels with the number of women working in engineering for example doubling during the past decade so there has been an increase there has been some movement 
If you look at the UK's vaccine response, now that's something that you might remember. Professor Sarah Gilbert, Kate Bingham and Dr. Jenny Harries have all played high profile roles in the fight against COVID and are shining examples of the highly qualified roles available to young girls and women. I remember that when we went, for example, when I went to uh, the, and I mentioned this to Firdaus as well, to the to the Web Summit, one of the talks that we attended, that I attended, was about uh, a regulation. Should there be more regulation? Should there be less regulation? And in that talk, um, the, the, the speaker was talking about the COVID vaccine and how that was developed due to the fact there was less regulation because there was a need. It was a woman, basically, um, who did not give up, who continued and who pursued this this uh, this field. And un- ultimately, at the end of the day, we did have a vaccine, something to fight COVID. Cindy Rose, OBE, for example, is president of Microsoft's Western Europe Div- division with a guiding mission of empowering people and organizations to achieve more. You have Suzanne Chishti is one of the fintech thought leaders globally and CEO of Fintech Circle. You have the UK's rich history of female mathematicians, which stretches all the way back to Ada Lovelace, um, uh, daughter of Lord Byron, and frequently cited as the world's first computer programmer. You have uh, Ruth Lawrence, who aged 10, aged 10, became the youngest person to win a place at Oxford University. But let's go back even further. When we started off the program and when you were listening to Voice of Islam, and there's a, there's a guy speaking about women uh, in science and women empowerment, well, uh, we do have a history. We do have something to back that off, back that up. For example, Fatima al-Fihri. And not only is it inspirational to know that the oldest degree-granting university was founded by a Muslim, but it may shock some to know, it may surprise some to know, that it was initiated, planned, and funded by a Muslim woman. Yes, a Muslim woman. And this is not... 100 years ago, this is not 200 years ago, not even 300 years ago, we're talking about over 1,100 years ago, 1,100 years ago. And we've mentioned that name here on the Drive Time Show as well as on The Voice of Some many times probably. Um, Khulud Sharif, uh, who has an MA in teaching, she's a science teacher at Waltham High School. She said that as a STEM teacher, I have the privilege and honor of inspiring a love of science to young minds. Through experimentation, discovery, and knowledge of the workings of nature, my goal as, she's also a member of the Ahmadi Muslim community, as an Ahmadi Muslim science teacher is to empower young learners with critical scientific skills necessary for success as global citizens. And I think I couldn't have put it better as global citizens. You also have Dr. Nusra Sharif, who has a PhD in molecular immunology. She's a senior principal scientist at Pfizer. And she said that I serve as president of the United States Ahmadi Women Scientists Association. Now, she's from the Auxiliary Women's Organization of the Ahmadi Muslim Community in the United States. And she said that on a, uh, and on a professional level as senior principal scientist in the Inflammation and Immunology Research Unit at Pfizer, Massachusetts, USA. 
it was the scientists working in Pfizer that led to the development of a COVID-19 vaccine. What makes me distinct from others is keeping the guidance of the Holy Quran and inspiration by the fifth caliph to His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, may Allah strengthen his hand at the forefront of scientific research. The impact of an Ahmadi Muslim scientist can be far greater as we have the prayers of our beloved caliph in overcoming challenges and advancing in scientific innovation. Now, if you have ever seen the annual convention of the Ahmadi Muslim community, not just here in the UK, but in other countries as well, you have Germany, you have USA, you have Canada. Now, His Holiness, on the second day, usually on the Saturday, he addresses the women um, of the community. Now he's, uh, you know, in standing in front of the women, and he is addressing them. One day is dedicated to them, and in that session that he has with with the auxiliary women's uh, organization, there's also a an award ceremony, meaning that awards are given out to students who have achieved, you know, stars, A stars, and and whatnot, the highest, basically. Um, grades and marks in their years throughout the year as well as if they have graduated from university with flying colors then those women are also given awards by his holiness and i tell you one thing that is something that you can check for yourself if you go back to the records i mean that's all available on youtube or um on on the websites but usually the number of graduates who have passed not with with good grades no with flying colors we're talking about extremely extremely good results the number of women is most of the time if not every time higher than that of men and that gives you um an an, an inclination of how much emphasis we as ahmadis we as muslims put on education again this is not an option this is not uh, well if you want to do it go ahead no this is a duty it's it's mandatory upon every muslim man and every muslim woman to um go into higher education to 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 seek knowledge wherever they find it and however far they have to travel now Hazrat Aisha, the wife of the um, Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, she was also the daughter of Hazrat Abu Bakr, who was the closest companion of the Holy Prophet, as well as the first caliph after the demise of the Holy Prophet. Her life is proof of Islam's progressive stance on women. She was a very prominent figure who challenged the prevalent stereotypes and taboos of society. She was a wife, she was a stateswoman, she was a scholar, and she was also an enlightened thinker. When we're talking about, in the first half of the program, about depression, she also would, um, you know, there's narrations of her her dispensing medicine, herbal medicines, after the demise of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And once someone asked her, that, you know, Aisha, how do you how do you know? May Allah be pleased with her. How do you know so much about this? And she would say that uh, when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, when whenever he would you know, fall ill or had any kind of illness, um, the different tribes around Arabia would send uh, some of the herbal medicines, and and she she picked that up from there, and she would then give these medicines 
to the members of, uh, of, of, of that Islamic empire there as well. So she, been a, she was an astute woman who exhibited exemplary moral qualities. And, and she became one of the most influential persons of the Islamic history. It is well known, this is not a secret, that she's the narrator of more than 2,200 hadith, 2,000 uh, narrations, which today shape the Islamic legal traditions. And she is by, by far one of the most compelling figures in the mainstream of Islamic intellectual history. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, instructed the believers, men as well as women, that they can learn half of religious knowledge from his wife, Aisha. So it can go on and on and on. We have so many other female companions of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. His Holiness has been talking about them in his uh, series of sermons on the first companions. And you can go back and read for yourself. Unfortunately, that is all that we have time for. But... Um, Keep in mind, as far as the first topic is concerned, do not despair. There will be ease after hardship. If you are going through a phase of depression, if you if you think that you ha- you have uh, this mental illness, uh, mental health illness, then by all means do consult a professional. Make sure that you do get help. If you have someone in your family, then advise them to do that as well. Today's program was researched and produced by Manahan Khaled, Mubashira Ahmed, and Amatul Khan. Thank you so much to all three of them, and thank you to my brother in tech as well. We'll be back on Monday. Don't forget tomorrow morning SML. From all of us, Assalamu Alaikum.